The cost of housing in the country's most expensive city continues to rise, and Auckland's population is growing faster than the supply of new homes. The government has launched a multi-pronged strategy to make Auckland more affordable, and the council plans to radically change the way many people live. But this Radio New Zealand Insight program asks if the mix of forces which are at play in Auckland are too strong to rein in. Four eighty-eight, four hundred and ninety. A three-bedroom home in Pakaranga, selling for what's currently the median price for a home in Auckland, $505,000. Ten years ago, that median price was 265000 That's an increase of 124%, and most of that increase occurred in the first half of the decade. However, wages have grown more slowly. Developer Mark Todd is one of those who regard the outcome as a crisis. Housing it to me is in the same category as education and health. You imagine the outcry if after 10 years, in the last 10 years, our numeracy and literacy rates halved. That's what's happened in housing. Our affordability's doubled. I'm Todd Nile, and this insight looks at the challenge facing Auckland to provide enough homes at prices people can afford. Gone there, 505, congratulations. Reserve bank figures show on average a house cost two to three times an average yearly after-tax wage in the 1980s. Now it's around five times. The trends are similar nationwide, but on two fronts, Auckland is different. The prices are higher and the city is growing. Auckland must build 400,000 new homes in the next 30 years to house an extra one million people. Mark Todd says the decline in housing affordability needs urgent attention. Politicians have been kicking the can down the road for 10 years, not making any substantive effort to change that. You imagine if that had happened and, and those sort of metrics had changed that radically in the education or health sector, there would be an outcry. And I think finally people realise we really have got a crisis. Auckland Council's chief economist Jeff Cooper says housing is important for the economy, making up 10% of the region's economic activity. If you look at um, rent to income ratios in, in Auckland, it's about 38%, I think. Compare that to the rest of New Zealand where it's about 29%. So understanding uh, where that money is going is, is obviously critical to understanding what's happening with consumer sentiment in the retail sector or, or you know, a whole host of other sectors. Um, as those costs go up, it has implications for, for productive capacity um, of, of other sectors. Housing's become one of the main long-term issues for the Auckland Council, and it does use the word crisis. It started working on a housing strategic action plan with a wide range of players to explore what the council can do to boost the supply of affordable homes. Ree Anderson is the council's regional strategy manager. The issue that we've really got now is that we don't even have a good housing supply. In terms of residential consents, you know, we're probably having somewhere around 3,000 or 4,000 residential consents per year. And that's not necessarily what's built. And so if we're thinking that we need 10 to 13,000, it's huge, and it's cumulatively getting worse. So the reason that Council has determined it's a crisis is because of the scale of the problem. The Council itself has for a long time been the target of criticism for its plan to end unfettered urban sprawl over the next 30 years. Its plan is to accommodate 60 to 70% of the growth within the urban boundaries, increasing housing density. Some in the property development sector say that is driving up prices and that releasing more greenfield land around the perimeter will cut the price of land. But that's keenly debated. Releasing land is going to provide more land, but it's not going to materially lower 
the price of housing in Greenfields developments. Gary Taylor is a former Auckland regional politician and past director of the publicly owned Hobsonville Land Company. The raw land value is only about 10 to 15 percent of the section price. To go from farmland, from greenfields, to a section that you can build on, there's a lot of spend that you've got to make. Uh, you've got to put in the infrastructure, the footpaths, the roads, the Cuban channelling, the stormwater, the power, the phone, the water, and uh, basically create subdivided sections that have planning consent and approval and are ready to go. And that's by far, those costs are by far the bulk of what makes up the section price. Larry Murphy's the Professor of Property at Auckland University's Business School. He says if the price of land did fall, market forces might get in the way. Even if the land is free, if you give me the land for free, I will build to sell it to the current market average price. If I build it for a lot less, then people, the first buyers, uh, have an incentive to sell it the next day to other people who want it at the average price that's going in the market. So it's not just releasing land that makes things cheaper. You'd have to deal with the issue of how do you control the price where there's still a scarcity. It's a tail wagging the dog argument. Last year, newly built housing made up less than 1% of Auckland's total market, making it a proportion more likely to be affected by the price of the other 99%. But the Productivity Commission disagreed with that theory in its 300-page report on housing affordability. It says so-called smart growth policies such as Auckland's do have a significant impact on prices. The government's response to the Commission report is less emphatic on the argument that making more land available will improve affordability. But the Minister of Finance, Bill English, says that must be a factor. Well, that would be an, an unusual market if it, it um, held its price regardless of supply. Uh, we wouldn't, don't know any other markets like that. Uh, if there's generally, uh, in fact almost without exception, if there's more supply, it's going to tend to put some downward pressure on the price. doesn't guarantee the price will drop because there may be other factors pushing it up. Some of those are the costs of turning raw land into ready-to-build sections with resource consents, roads, water, sewerage and power in place. Auckland's council-owned Watercare is defending its $8,000 charge for connecting each dwelling to the city's water and sewerage lines. Watercare's Marlin Bridge says while a fraction of that is for the connection itself, the rest covers only part of the cost of expanding infrastructure. At the moment it's around 30% of what the actual growth costs to us are. Is that a, a ratio that is fixed or you're looking to move it up or down? Definitely trying to move it up. Obviously there's sensitivities around how much we can do that and how fast we can do that. And at the moment that's just something we're working through to try and you know, obviously push more of that cost towards the growth areas if they're contributing. It's not just on the periphery that land price is an issue. Developer Mark Todd's firm Ockham specialises in apartments on sites in central Auckland. We just need to make sure that this quite radical change in approach to density and upzoning is just not stifled by investors and land bankers getting in there and driving the price up. And it's already happening. In Ellerslie, for example, there's three sites, Ellerslie, Pamir Highway. One sold two years ago, kind of still in the recession. 1,000 square metres for 535,000. Last Christmas, the one next door sold for 810. And three weeks ago, the one next door to that sold for 922,000. And this is right by a train station, a node in Ellerslie, so the land price has nearly doubled in two years. 
It's all driven by speculation about where intensification is going to be allowed. Auckland Council's committed to having seven years' supply of ready-to-develop land at any time, though hasn't yet reached that target. Land supply and price are just two of the issues to be tackled, as Auckland works out how to ensure enough homes are built and that they are ones that people can afford to buy. One challenge is who will build homes that lower or even middle-income earners can buy. It's that problem that's prompted greater involvement from Auckland Council in its role as a significant landowner. One answer might lie here in the southern suburb of Papatoitoi. I'm standing on a rather unused supermarket car park, just one part of a large block of underdeveloped land owned by Auckland Council. For the first time, the council's starting to look at taking a hands-on role in some higher-density developments on sites such as this one. The chief executive of the council's property company, David Rankin, says this piece of land has possibilities. Rather than just sell that site to the you know, highest bidder, what we're looking at is working with some of those commercial um, operators like the supermarket to try and get a redevelopment of the front piece onto the town centre main, main street. And then out the back, we're in, working our way right now through a market process to select a development partner or partners to look at a, um, a housing development using that rear part of the site, which would be right near the town centre, right near the new rail station, and potentially a good example of um, a well-designed, largely owner-occupied uh, development. The council wants to help create examples of how good design can produce attractive, higher-density housing developments. Good examples are hard to find, especially outside the city's more affluent suburbs. Leaky building problems have blighted a wave of development in the late 1990s when townhouses and even apartments were built in suburban areas. But times and lifestyles change, and property consultant Martin Udale believes many people are ready to give up the traditional house and section. I think the city is on uh, a cusp of change, a generation of change. Um, I think people are much more willing and able to make quite sophisticated trade-offs between where they live and what they live in, and that um, new forms of housing typology, smaller houses, terrace houses, attached houses, apartments, will become more commonplace um, particularly if they're in areas that are seen to be desirable to live in, and those are you know areas that are close to employment, areas that are close to um, kind of natural amenity, culture, education, all those sorts of things, and people will willingly make that choice. And I think that's demonstrated around the world in in other cities that have been through what Auckland is about to start going through over the next. 25, 30 years. Gary Taylor says Auckland can't expect new housing to be delivered purely in the way it has in the past. I don't think that expecting the market to provide the quantity of new housing that's going to be required is going to cut the mustard. I think we need a new model, we need a new approach, we need to put ideological sort of arguments about public, you know, sector involvement in housing to one side and actually look at it in a very pragmatic and analytical way. And if you do that, I think you do come up with the notion that uh, we need a brand new approach here. Just one example of a new approach can be found out here in West Auckland. What we've got here is um, a housing development of 73 in total in number of units. And it's a real mix of housing tenures and 
housing types. Brian Donnelly's showing me an affordable home development in Glen Eden, just off the main West Coast Road. He's the chief executive of the Housing Foundation, an organisation increasingly talked about for its work in helping those on lower incomes to own homes. We've got a, um, a number of households that are at varying stages of, I guess what I'd call, getting secure, stable accommodation for themselves in the first instance. For those people, it's a matter of getting themselves in a position where they've got a steady income, they can start saving, and then progressively we work with those families and eventually they might be in a position to buy out shares in that home over time and then eventually, over the long haul, might be able to buy the home outright. So we sort of act in a way a bit like a mum and dad, take an interest in them and help them through that process. In one of the first homes built here, Anita, her partner Ken, with their three-year-old son, are soon to take that step and buy the home that they've been renting for four years. We've got a, a four-bedroom house here. My partner and I were living over Anita there. and Ken pay market rent. They may buy the home outright, or if that's a stretch, the foundation might retain a share for longer. Three quarters of the increased value of the home after five years of renting becomes theirs, effectively the deposit towards their goal of home ownership. So that our, our son can have something, you know, something that he can call his, his own and we'll be able to leave something for him. And I believe that the way the Auckland prices are going at the, at the moment, the only way our children, like my son and my nieces and nephews, will be able to buy a house in Auckland is if they have some equity which is left behind by us. The homes out here, like Anita and Ken's, are cleverly built. The varying sizes share a basic design and their position to catch the sun and the free warmth that that brings. This development includes homes built by or for other agencies, such as the Salvation Army, Habitat, whose buyers help build the homes, and Housing New Zealand. Across Auckland, Housing Foundation-led projects have built nearly 200 homes. Brian Donnelly says rising land prices are having an effect, though. It's got very difficult because we've seen a significant increase in interest in any uh, land that is available. But again, if we think about the contribution that uh, councils and uh, particularly central government through Housing Corporation and the Crown could be offering here, there we do know of significant tracts of land throughout the Auckland metropolitan area which um, could be made available, albeit not necessarily on generous or favourable terms to enable these sort of developments to occur. The work being done by the Housing Foundation is seen as an important example of how to provide good quality affordable homes in Auckland. But the scale of the challenge facing Auckland is clear. If the city reaches the goal of adding 10,000 homes each year, all that the Foundation has so far achieved equates to one week of the required construction. The government plays many roles in Auckland's housing market. One is landowner and housing landlord. And, and this whole street here with these magnificent uh, you know, palm trees and um, again kept as part of the heritage of the place. This is Hobsonville Point, the largest planned community development in Auckland with 3,000 homes expected to be built over coming decades. The development's owned by a subsidiary of Housing New Zealand. It's regarded as a model of higher density housing, either townhouses or houses on small sections and around me amenities such as parks and walkways. The land is the former Air Force base, the development's being carried out by an Australian firm. Gary Taylor was a founding director of the state-owned Hobsonville Land Company. There's going to have to be more greenfields development 
um, where you can release land the sort of size of Hobsonville, which is, you know, 2,500, 3,000 dwellings or bigger, and have a, a public land development entity set up that would do that, on a commercial basis, of course, but using public funding as seed money to get the thing going, which is what's happened at Hobsonville and which uh, most of the Australian state governments are doing to cope with population growth there. That's the model. But Hobsonsville's contribution to genuinely affordable housing is a moot point. The government's gateway assistance scheme for first home buyers has been discontinued, with just 17 Hobsonville homes made available. Homes currently for sale range from six dollars to $800,000, and the area is essentially an attractive commercial housing development. A report on the approach to affordable housing at Hobsonville Point has for months been held inside the office of the Minister for Housing. The Finance Minister, Bill English, says Hobsonville Point, in any form, will contribute to Auckland's housing stock. Look, there's space there for 3,000 houses. Uh, There's demand in Auckland. Uh, Government's making decisions so that um, the development of Hobsonville can really... It's picking up speed now, but that it can pick up speed further if uh, people can move there um, and leave behind a lower-value house in, in another suburb, well, that creates a space for someone. The government also formulates policies which affect the housing market. Um, I might just invite all of the speakers up here. And uh, as the name suggests... Three economists assembled by Auckland so Council it, uh, recently took a look at what was driving the city's housing market. The Westpac Bank's chief economist, Dominic Stevens, says financial rather than physical factors are the main influence. He cited the role played by tax deductions available to property investors. In New Zealand, most investors find that the rental return does not meet the expenses of maintaining the property. That excess expense is actually tax deductible, and in particular the interest cost of of, uh, owning the house is tax deductible, interest cost of any loan. So in 1999, when the top rate of income tax was 33 cents, if you made a $10,000 loss on your rental property, you got a cheque at the end of the year for $3,300 from the IRD. When the tax rate went up to 39 cents, the size of that cheque went to $3,900. Basically, tax rates went up, there was more tax to shelter from, and basically a bunch of baby boomers realised that they didn't have to pay the 39-cent rate if they bought themselves from residential investment properties, reduced their taxable labour incomes, and exchanged it for a tax-free capital gain, or the hope of tax-free capital gain. The Productivity Commission didn't see a pressing case for dealing with tax policy as a housing issue. It says that should be left to any broader review of the tax system. The government's response to the Commission report talks only of monitoring the impact of a recent removal of deductions for depreciation. Developer Mark Todd believes rising prices in Auckland also reflect the activities of overseas-funded investors. There is a lot of uh, foreign money flying to New Zealand, has been for the last 10 years, but particularly the last 18 months, um, it's really coming back into the market. Foreign money making purchases, particularly in the um, Brownfields Ithmus sites. You've got family trusts, the older generation looking to get a reasonable return. Housing is an inflation-proofed investment, you know, and a lot of older, smarter people realise that. That's good investment for them, but is it good for society, you know? Is it good for society? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. Should we change that attitude? I mean, I'm, I would argue that we're really penalising our younger generation. Much of the public debate over Auckland's housing has been over the cost of ownership. 
but a significant part of the population is struggling to rent in what's called the social housing market. The social market is actually more critical than the, the general market. Major Campbell Roberts is the National Director of the Salvation Army's Social Policy and Parliamentary Unit. Usually in the general market people have another option. If they can't uh, afford to buy a house, they can actually uh, rent a house. Whereas in the social market, if you can't afford to get into a, a rental house and Housing New Zealand's not providing you with a house, then there isn't anywhere to go, and hence we've got people living in caravan parks. Uh, we've got uh, lots of people in South Auckland surviving by putting two or three households together. The dominant social housing landlord is Housing New Zealand, with more than 30,000 homes in Auckland. Campbell Roberts says as Housing New Zealand limits its help to those most urgently in need, a growing number are being referred to the small and underfunded community housing sector. A recent example of somebody who, uh, paying $450 rent, um, had $40 left over for everything for herself and two children. Now, how, what do we do? You know, there isn't any housing. Um, obviously, the answer for us is to get her out of that $450 house. But how do you do that? Um, because there is no housing New Zealand houses available and um, there isn't anything in the private sector that's available. He says the $2 billion a year the government pays out to subsidise private market rentals simply fuels the rents in existing homes, but is too low to spark any new building. The problem with housing is that it's not like any other social provision where you can uh, realise that it's short and uh, in two or three years you can crank it up and make it happen. And we're now in a situation where we estimate there's 10,000 uh, houses short in Auckland. There's been an appalling uh, track record by previous governments in how they've managed that situation, and now we're in a crisis which actually we're not going to get out of quickly. And the real cost of that is going to fall on the most vulnerable and the very poorest of our community. Bill English says some change may be made to those subsidies. We're having a look at the two main housing subsidies, accommodation supplement and the much bigger subsidy for people who are in state houses. Uh, we'll be very careful about any change to those subsidies because they are the cash income for people, mo almost all of whom are on pretty low incomes. But uh, we do need to, you know, we're, we're looking, for instance, we're looking at options like the uh, expert group on poverty who've suggested that housing that the government subsidises should have some kind of warrant of fitness about the standard of that housing. So, uh, you know, we're interested in using our subsidy to not just assist people, but maybe to influence the housing stock. The biggest single change to social housing in Auckland will occur in the Tamaki redevelopment. It sits alongside the Gleninist North Block, where protests have been staged over Housing New Zealand's work to replace older rental homes with a smaller number of new properties and selling off others to the private sector. The larger Tamaki redevelopment is a joint venture between Auckland Council and the government. Over 20 years it will redevelop an area including several thousand Housing New Zealand rental homes. Social housing dwelling numbers will be maintained and additional homes added for private sale or rent. For those trying to buy their first home in Auckland, Bill English says there's unlikely to be new assistance schemes from the government other than the KiwiSaver home subsidies. Larry Murphy from Auckland University acknowledges that some economic arguments see such schemes as inefficient. On the other hand, there are other sociological um, analyses that argue that getting people into home ownership relatively early is effective in the long run as it allows people to accumulate an asset 
um, and most people are not, not very good at accumulating financial assets, but they are prepared to keep paying into it for a house. And that, that if people can do that early enough, um, then it actually becomes a help for when they retire and when they're old. And the evidence is that if you're a retired homeowner who owns the house outright, then you suffer less poverty. And that has a positive effect for government expenditure, so it keeps down the demand on pensions in the future. So what are the prospects for housing in Auckland in the foreseeable future? At the general level, we've got a very big problem and that it's it will take many years to address, uh, even if we release land and even if we change the course of planning and do other things. There are ongoing issues where demand will exceed supply for some time. So that will continue to have pressure on prices. The pace of change in important areas is stepping up. The first stage of Auckland Council's Strategic Housing Action Plan will be ready next month, including pointers to possible joint venture developments. The government has committed to working with the council. The new planning rulebook for the city will emerge in draft form next year. The unitary plan will include ideas which are expected to make it easier to develop more homes and a greater variety of styles within existing suburbs. Property and planning specialist Martin Udale says done properly, higher density housing should be well received. My experience in development tells me that people are very able to make quite sophisticated trade-offs and choices around housing um, and they do it readily. I think part of the risk is that there's a lot of talk um, around what people won't do and that people will only live like this and that's what everybody wants and we risk walking into the future looking backwards rather than walking into the future looking forward and making decisions about the future, we'll be making a lot of decisions in in the past. And If we do that, then again we will um, constrain our opportunity to actually deliver on what people want. Developer Mark Todd says significant public sector involvement will be needed at the more affordable end of the spectrum. This uh, housing affordability issue is not going to go away in one year, in two years or five years. It's going to take 10 to 15 years of sustained house building to have any effect. The numbers remain sobering. Auckland is still building fewer than half of the homes each year that it needs to build for the next three decades. For every house built, the population grows by seven people, nearly three times the national average. Auckland Council Properties' David Rankin argues that even the hands-on role of the local authority needs to be kept in perspective. The way I sort of think of it is if you look at over eight to ten years our contribution working with developers and land we hold and perhaps some sites we acquire is probably going to be in the low thousands rather than tens of thousands and tens of thousands is what's needed so it can only be a contribution. There's agreement that finding a way to build more and more affordable homes in Auckland is not simple. A long list of ideas from simplifying paperwork to scrutinising the efficiency of the construction industry may make only small differences, if any at all. The Minister of Finance, Bill English, is not making any predictions. We haven't got any strong expectation. I'd like to think that, given the common goal that I think all the councils we've spoken to and the government have for better housing affordability, that at least we can ensure that the bit bit that government and local government control uh, doesn't contribute to another housing bubble, that somehow we can have, you know, relatively maybe mildly increasing or mildly decreasing house prices over time. I'm Todd Nile, and that's Insight for this week. 
If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight.